Don't know if it's on. Is it on? Okay, today's Bible reading is coming from Luke chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verse 8 through to 15. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Hello everybody. I am Pastor Brendan. I am delighted to be with you today talking about Christmas, and specifically, why Christmas? Why Christmas as opposed to some other celebration about a similar thing? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to talk about that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for your son sent down, who we remember every day. We remember specifically and particularly at this time of year. We ask your blessing on us as we engage with you today. We ask that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's a surprising amount of objections you might hear to, um, to the celebration of Christmas as a general phenomenon. From within the church, there are sometimes Christians who will even object. They'll say that Jesus didn't call for his birth to be celebrated, um, and therefore we shouldn't, or that the holidays become too secular and are therefore more damaging to the church than helpful. And um, most Christians, and myself included, don't find those particularly compelling, but that's an argument that Christians can kind of have with each other. From outside the church, there's a number of things that people say to object to the celebration of the birth of Christ the way we do it. Some say that December 25th is probably not the exact date on which Jesus is born. Okay. Um, probably, maybe, I'm not sure that matters. Some will say that the celebration of Christmas, the things around that, the holly and the mistletoe and those trappings, they're lifted from pagan festivals and therefore there's something wrong with using them. And I've talked about that last year and usually engage with something like that more or less every year. And the short answer about that one is yes, but actually no. Um, and so we don't really worry about where mistletoe comes from. But this year, um, like other years, there's a kind of, kind of talking point that flies across Facebook. You might hear people discuss. You may never hear this at all, in fact, but it's worth being prepared for. And that's this idea that the birth of Jesus Christ as a story maybe isn't so special and therefore isn't worth celebrating because... There are many religious traditions all around the world that have stories of miraculous conceptions and births, and those births often produce a child who is said to be a savior of the world um, and does the kind of things that Jesus may even do in the Gospels, and we don't celebrate all of those. Why do we show favoritism to this particular message as opposed to one of those? Why Christmas rather than celebrating someone else's birthday? Because if this is true, then the story of Christmas may not be good news as much as it is old news. Or maybe even worse than that, perhaps fake news. 
So why Christmas and why should we pay extra attention to the birth of Jesus? Why should we expect that to be the truth as opposed to another holiday? Uh, rather than, say, the birth of the Buddha or the, the birth of Augustus Caesar. Um, because all of these guys, both of those guys have some supernatural divine claim about the way they were born into the world and the life that they lived. And if we look at one of those stories and dismiss it and say, well, that seems unlikely, I'm not going to give that my attention, why would we give the birth of Christ our focus and attention? Why this saviour? Why this virgin mother? Why the one heralded by these angels? Why is that worth our time? So we're going to think about that a little bit today. And we'll look at a couple of these alternatives. And depending on your background, you might be familiar with them. They might be uh, entirely new to you. But they're interesting to understand and useful to know. After all, if you speak to someone from a different religious background and you have some uh, toleration for listening to them and hearing about the story of their savior, perhaps they'll be willing to listen to the story of yours. So let's check these guys out very quickly. Oop, nothing on that one. Aha! Now, the picture you see before you, they're very brightly colored. I initially thought when I picked that picture up that it was some kind of old painting, but I'm starting to think it's some kind of Photoshop that someone might have done as a school project. Either way, this is a picture of the birth of the Buddha. Um, and the birth of the Buddha has a bunch of tradition, uh, traditions around it uh, and variants around that like Christianity does. And the stories around his birth can differ at certain points. But roughly, the story of Buddha's birth in Buddhist religion goes something like this. Uh, Buddha's father is the chief of one Hindu clan in what is today the modern region of Nepal, country of Nepal. Uh, his mother is a princess from another clan. Uh, he's conceived in the typical way and on the night in which he is conceived. Uh, his mother Maya has a divine dream in which a heavenly white elephant with six tusks passes into her side, into her body. The pregnancy takes ten months to complete. And the tradition of the region is that the princess, when she's ready to give birth, she returns to her father's kingdom. But the plan goes somewhat awry, and she has to give birth to the child partway there in a garden under the shade of a tree. And that's the scene you see rendered there. Before you, the traditional account holds that immediately after being born, the young lad uh, stood up, he faced north, he took seven steps. With each step, a lotus flower bloomed in those steps, and he declared, I am the chief of the world. He's said to be born holding the miraculous medicine with which he would later perform some miracles. And you can see in the top right corner of that picture, if you look hard enough, you squint through the light, um, there is a host of heavenly spirits throwing flowers and celebrating this birth. Wise men invited to attend him and prophesy about him. Their conclusion was that he would either be a great king or a great holy man. And his father, wanting him to be a king, he raises him in isolation lest he get religious ideas, a plan that later backfires when he rebels. But we can see that the child that the world would later call the Buddha uh, shares in his story some of the features, certainly, that we see in the Christmas story. Uh, his birth is uh, divinely foreshadowed by a dream, if not an angelic announcement. Uh, the birth, it takes place in these humble circumstances that are not fitting for a king to be born, but nonetheless, that is where he is born, rather than in the glamour that might be more appropriate. And he's attended to by these divine spirits and wise men. He's born into a royal legacy, but he'll ultimately rise to prominence with claims of heavenly wisdom, not earthly claims of kingship that his blood entitles him to. And these are familiar ideas, if we're being honest. 
And if one wanted to be clumsy about it, we could say they're close enough to almost be the same. And if they're the same, then neither of them is special enough to stand out as the real savior of the world, the one with a birthday worth celebrating. But if we look past those similarities, the differences are a matter of life and death. Buddhism and Christianity recognize a similar problem in the world. One calls it karma, the other calls it sin. In both cases, it's the weight of our own wickedness pressing down on us and keeping us from reaching the divine truth and light of heaven. Buddha is what Buddhism calls a bodhisattva. That means he's died and been reincarnated over and over again. Uh, that's what that religion claims. Many times acquiring new wisdom and returns to the world to guide people towards their own enlightenment, hoping to help them shed this karma. And that wisdom comes with rules and codes to obey and things to do and things to seek and things to sacrifice, um, ways to try harder to purify oneself, to shed the weight of that karma. And that's the problem with Buddhism and with Buddha as a savior. If we put aside all that supernatural claim from his birth there, the dream and the seven steps and the reincarnation, if we put that aside because the Bible asks us to believe on faith weirder things than that, the problem is that there is something wrong with our nature that makes it impossible for us to fix ourselves in this world. And the Buddha can offer no solutions other than at the final question, try harder. But Jesus is not a man who learned by trying over and over again to be good. Jesus is God. He's God who became man. And when Jesus was born, it was nothing like anything that had happened in the history of the world. Instead of a man showing a new way to reach for a distant heaven, Jesus comes as the hand of God reaching down to a wayward earth to participate in it and to find us. And Christmas is the day that we celebrate the truth that God in heaven wants us enough that he would come to save us himself. And that's unlike any savior the world has ever claimed to produce. What about a figure a little bit less lofty, a little bit less heavenly than the Buddha? This one we might in fact know from the Gospels themselves. He's a side character who is featured there. This is a, a statue of Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome. Uh, he inherited more or less inherited that position from his uh, uncle Julius Caesar, who wasn't quite an emperor, just a dictator. So Augustus becomes the first emperor of Rome, and he's uh, the king of the known world who calls the census that forces Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem um, while Mary is heavily pregnant. And the early church has no end of trouble with the emperors of Rome because they tended to make the claim that they were miracle children with divine birth and authority, uh, delivered from the realm of the gods, and Augustus himself was no exception. Now, there's no lingering billion-strong religion who worship Augustus after his death, but the cult that did worship him would tell us a story of his divine arrival that would be something like this. In long antiquity, before that he would be born, uh, there were signs foretelling that Augustus was going to come. A bolt of lightning struck the wall of his hometown Velitre, and it was determined by the oracles of that place that this was a sign that one day a child would be born from here who would rule the world. And it's said that before and after his birth, there were a great number of omens uh, that foretold his special coming. And a few months before he was born, a, a general sign was determined by the priests that nature was, was pregnant with a king for the Roman people. And Rome was a republic at the time and not particularly keen on a king. 
And the Senate passed a ruling that no male child that year that is born should be reared. That is to say, any other male children who may result in being a king that we don't want should be dealt with. This may be familiar. Yet there were many senators whose wives happened to be pregnant at this time, of course, and they liked to think that this would suggest that their child would become king of Rome, and they made sure that this decree, despite being agreed in the Senate House, never quite made it to the Treasury Office where it would be made official. And after this, they simply hid their pregnant wives away and quietly hoped to be the one who would have the king of Rome. And this was true of the Senator Octavius and his wife, Atia. Uh, it said that Atia uh, fell asleep in the temple of Apollo, the sun god, and a golden serpent glided up to her and then away, and this is reckoned as a sign that Apollo, the sun god, at that moment mystically fathered in her a divine child. He was born in secret and thus uh, escaped the initial attention and the, the questions of, hey, when was this child born in that year that we said there were going to be no male competing children born in? Um, and by the time he was growing up, it was too late to deal with him. While an infant, apparently, he would sneak out of his crib and make his way up tall towers to watch the sunrise. Nature is said to obey him, once as a child staying at his grandfather's estate. There's a story that there was a great ruckus of frogs croaking, and that disturbed him, and he shushed them. And since that day, no frog has ever croaked within miles of that land. An eagle is said to once have swooped down from the sky and plucked the bread from his hand as he was stopping to lunch on the road. And then perhaps thinking better of this action, it flew back to him and gently deposited the bread back in his hand. This is the miracle arrival of the child who would be born Octavian, but later called Augustus, the great one, the savior of Rome, the only country that matters to save. So once again, if we choose not to interrogate these events on how likely they were and only to assess what they are supposing to mean, which is charitable, but that's what we're going to do. Augustus was a child of prophecy. There were signs and portents that foretold his coming. He had a mortal mother, although the god Apollo is said to be his true father, and the man Octavius merely a noble and responsible stepfather. The powers that be feared a rival king, and they sought to purge all the possible male children to thwart this prophecy. These should all be familiar-sounding ideas. Now, these all um, are all true of Christ as well. Christ's coming was foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures in many places. He was conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and raised as the son of the carpenter Joseph. And he narrowly avoided a royal cull trying to root out the prophesied king of the Jews. Mary and Joseph sped him off to Egypt while Herod was lashing out trying to defy this prophecy. But for all the godly talk around Augustus, he was ultimately a very worldly king, and he couldn't be anything else. For Augustus to save Rome meant he was going to save it from becoming degraded and falling to barbarians. That would mean that he would execute with divine precision the same kind of moves and actions that you would expect an earthly king to do. Impose taxes on this group, annex this neighboring tribe's land, wipe out this opposition cult. For Augustus to be born to save Rome meant something like to save civilization from sliding backwards into the darkness. As if there is a potential in mankind for greatness that it requires this great leader to expose and can all be done here if only we had such a savior. 
Jesus wasn't born to save the world. He was born to the world to save you and to save I and every other individual who calls on his name. Rome gave the world a lot of advancement and peace and a great deal of suffering and war. But when the Roman official Pilate, appointed by Tiberius, the new emperor of Rome, Augustus's adopted son, when he asked Jesus about his kingdom, Jesus didn't call on the fact that he is an inheritor of the line of David, uh, the kings of the united Israel, the chosen people of God. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if, I, if it were, then my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but my kingdom is from another place. Jesus didn't come to save this world. Nothing will save this world. Jesus came to save the people of this world who love God to a new and a better world. And if we accept every claim made about Augustus, the best claim to be made about him is that he came to strengthen and rule over a world in which violent men subjugate the weak, in which plague and famine continue to rip through the world like knives, and in which men and women live desperate lives, grasping for survival with no value as individuals, only as part of a greater whole of something as big and abstract as Rome or civilization. But the Savior born of Mary tells the world, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That's a Savior who will lay down his life for his sheep, for his people. That's a Savior worth celebrating. And there are other miracle children uh, born with a Savior role and similarities in their stories to the birth of Christ that come from cultures all around the world. Uh, Hinduism has the birth of Krishna, an avatar of the god Vishnu, and also the supreme god incarnate in his own right. Um, some practices of Taoism will say that uh, Lao Tzu, their chief, uh, chief figure in Taoism, was conceived when his mother gazed on a falling star, and then he was born with such wisdom that he emerged from his mother's womb as an old man with a full gray beard. It just sounds terrible. Um, there's an Aztec story about Quetzalcoatl, one of their gods who was born to a virgin mother in one of three different ways. Either uh, she was rendered pregnant after a, a dream from another god, Ometeotl, um, or she swallowed a sacred gemstone, or she was shot in the stomach by an arrow fired by another god, Mixacoatl. One of those, take your pick. The truth is that the circumstances of Jesus' birth Miraculous, the miraculous pregnancy, the uh, failed attempt to kill the child, the joy of the angels, the recognition of the wise men, uh, the humble place of birth, the blood of kings in his veins, the incarnation of the divine, none of these things are exclusive claims to the religion of Christianity. None of them are even particularly new when it comes to Jesus' story. And after Jesus' story, there'll be Muslims and Sufis who have their own similar stories about their own miracle children after Jesus had done his work and returned to heaven. Does this mean then that there is nothing remarkable about Jesus' birth if there are so many stories like it from so many religions around the world? Well, plainly not. In fact, knowing that these stories exist and that they have these similarities to Jesus' story blows my mind and should blow yours. How interesting it is that all of mankind seems to know that it needs a saviour who must enter the world the way, same way that humans do, but must be conceived by some divine mechanism unless he be a little uh, too less of a god and too much of a man. And how funny it is to me that all of the major religions and no shortage of the minor ones seem to recognize that the earth is doomed, 
shaking itself apart under its corruption, the influence of wicked karma or the barbarians beyond the walls. And they know and everyone knows that human nature is sick and mankind knows it is dying and reaching out desperately. And when it finds a story that has a divine child born into the world, somehow clean where everything else in the world seems dirty, somehow perfect when everything in the world seems flawed, the world and every tribe in her seems to say, yes, I thought it would be something like that. There's a recognition of it. And all the trappings of Christmas and the miraculous signs and amazing circumstances are not the purpose of Jesus' coming. Jesus didn't go around bragging about the circumstances of his birth. He came into the world that way so that the story would be recorded in the Gospels. And so for 2,000 years after he has come, monks in Thailand and uh, tribesmen in the Amazon and noble women in Rome and African kings and Japanese Shinto priests can all read this story and immediately say, oh, I know what kind of child this is. This is a heavenly child sent to save us. I wonder if he has what it takes. And it's the cross, not the cradle, where Jesus shows us that he has what it takes to save us. It's the cross where Jesus does what no other God claims to do. He affirms, yes, you are broken and the wicked things you have done are real and the sins that you have put into the world require restitution. But if you call on my name, I will weld you to myself and you will become a part of me and then I will do the suffering for you. And for all of human history and religions have been grasping for a savior that can do what's necessary and the events of Easter validate the promises that Christmas makes. Two Gospels, Luke and Matthew, have Christmas narratives that tell the story of the birth of Jesus. But John's Gospel has a kind of a Christmas narrative in a sense that it tells the meaning of Christmas and everything that would be accomplished because of Christmas. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. The true light who gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of blood, nor of the desire or will of man, but born of God. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this season. We thank you that your son Jesus came into our world, God incarnate. We thank you that he came not to offer us a new prescription of rules to follow or to subdue and rule the nations, but to suffer and die on our behalf, to show us the new abundant life on the other side of forgiveness and eternal life on the other side of death. Fix in our hearts, Lord, the gift your Son freely gives to us. And give us the courage and urgency every opportunity we get to guide those we meet to the world's one and only Savior who has what it takes to make us children of God. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.